Welcome to Insurance Uncut, a show all about insurance. Each week, we'll be taking a different topic that impacts the insurance industry and discussing it with our guest. If you work in the general insurance market or have an interest in insurance, this podcast is for you. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by the insurance team at LCP. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the show or any topic suggestions, so please get in touch to share your ideas and feedback. Let's kick off with this week's episode. Hi again, Charles. How are you doing this week? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm really pleased that we're talking about investment today. I think it's a subject that often gets skimmed over in the world of non-life insurance. Most non-life insurers try to keep investments simple, and that's the right thing to do. But actually, it's still a very important subject to look at because there are still returns to be made, there's losses to be made, and it's something that is well worth spending a bit of time on. Really pleased to welcome John Clements this week, who is a partner in LCP's investment team. He advises a wide range of clients on setting and implementing their investment strategy with a particular focus on asset switching mechanisms, investment manager selection, asset transfers, and performance measurement. So welcome to the podcast, John. Hi, both. Nice to be here. I was going to kick off and say, obviously, we're recording this the day after the budget, and I didn't want to let the opportunity go by to just get your thoughts on what in the budget caught your eye and what might be relevant for general insurers. It's one of those where they'll need to pour over the detail and pick the bones out of sort of how much there's new commitments and how much is old stuff that's always being recycled as you you get with budgets. But I think the general principle is as expected in that it doesn't look like it's a sort of George Osborne austerity style budget. It looks like the high spending is going to keep going for the foreseeable future. So I think we haven't seen massive market shocks or anything as a result of it. Um, I think, if anything, things like inflation outlook, where there's pressures, there's just being a lot of money in the system, are probably still as relevant as they were this time two days ago. Great. So should we kick off with just maybe starting with basics a little bit? So what do non-life insurers typically invest in? I guess as you'd expect, there is a range of different people taking different approaches. But I guess if we were to talk about a typical investment strategy, you're probably looking at about three quarters in a core of assets that will be your sort of plain vanilla investment grade corporate bonds, your developed government bonds, cash, and then maybe about a quarter in other types of approaches. So it could be absolute return strategies. So still in the bond space, but a bit more flexibility with your manager. Illiquid assets is a big topic. Equities, that would generally be where we would see the split. Presumably, most non-life insurers just feel that they need to keep things simple because of the relatively short-term nature of their liabilities. And I guess the tough sort of solvency two rules. Yeah, exactly. So I think we're definitely seeing that most of the assets in core plain vanilla stuff. I guess in terms of the simplicity side of things, one of the interesting trends that we've seen is with that core, there's been a trend of sort of rationalization. So if you had a few different managers managing those assets, maybe rationalize that down to a single manager, which keeps things a bit simpler. It makes your reporting a lot simpler if you're not having to sort of reconcile between two different managers and also pretty good in terms of driving fee savings if you can sort of double the size of your mandate and have a winner-takes-all approach. Do you see that as a good thing, that there's been a trend towards fewer managers? 
I think so on the core side of things where efficiencies and reporting make sense. On the other side, for the non-core assets, we've seen more managers. So there might be a bit of a trade-off and a balance going on. And I think that makes sense. If you're looking at, say, a liquid investments that maybe you're less familiar with, you don't just want to pick whoever happens to be in situ as your core manager. You want to find someone who's best of breed. If you are making a reasonably sized allocation, you might want to split it amongst two or three different managers. So I think overall, the governance might sort of balance out if you keep things a bit simpler where it makes sense to be simple and you make sure you're going best of breed where it's more important. Looking across the general insurers that you work with, in terms of the type of target return that they're going for, does it tend to be very similar or is there a wide range? We did a survey on this a couple of years ago. It was really interesting. In terms of the overall investment returns where people end up, there was actually a fair amount of consistency with the larger insurers, so kind of multi-billion. So that's not to say they're all holding exactly the same instruments, but in terms of where they end up, in terms of the target return that they're aiming for, it tends to be there or thereabouts. And actually, one of the sort of anecdotes from the survey when we spoke to people was it was striking how their investment teams were quite interested in what other investment teams were doing and how their returns compared. So I think there is an element of sort of not wanting to be out of line with your competitors and perhaps at a disadvantage. With the smaller insurers, say less than a billion, massive range we've seen. So some there that are super conservative and some there that are just much, much more aggressive. And it's quite hard to discern reasons why for that. One of the things that struck us is we thought that maybe solvency and position there's going to be a reason for that. So intuitively, you think if you've got a lot of headroom, maybe that's a license to take a bit more investment risk and target a bit higher return. But we just didn't see that. We did a nice scatter chart, I remember, of sort of investment return versus solvency position. And it was a just a total shotgun blast. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't draw a line through it. So what you end up is actually it's more down to things like culture. If you've got a private equity owner or if you've got a big investment team and extra resource there, people tend to be a bit more willing to spend time on the investments rather than if you're keeping things very lean. Culture seems to be a real theme we've had, I feel, in quite a few of our podcasts are where the kind of culture of a firm really drives quite a lot of the elements that from the outset you might not think would be such a driving factor. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I guess so, John, what's the kind of top issues for clients in the investment space then at the moment? Well, probably number one is inflation. It's very visible. And I say most of my conversations seem to be about inflation at this point. And that's not just in work. <laughs> you're talking to a taxi driver or your postman. <laughs> you're talking about gas prices, petrol prices, lorry drivers, shipping costs and things like that. So just extremely visible. Certainly in terms of data, inflation over 5% in the U.S., it looks like the UK is heading up to north of four at some point next year. So certainly very topical for clients. And I guess how that feeds through in terms of investment portfolios, it looks like central banks maybe hiking rates maybe a bit sooner than was expected previously to try and keep inflationary pressures under control. So what does that mean in terms of investment strategy? What sort of things are people looking at doing to manage that increased inflation risk? I guess one of the first questions clients have asked is sort of, is there anything I'm holding that's looking quite exposed to these risks? Is there anything that I currently have that could get hit by this? And where we're seeing quite a bit of action is corporate bond portfolios. So you're locking into a fixed rate 
And maybe does it make sense to shorten those corporate bond portfolios? So rather than having a long duration and lock in for the next five years or so, maybe move it down to, say, a year or two so that you're just a bit more resilient in terms of if rates start going up. And I think there's a second benefit of that as well, which feeds quite nicely. It's not just resilience to interest rates going up, but also just in the current environment with COVID and pandemic pressures, lending to companies for a year or two might feel a bit more comfortable than lending to companies for five years and hoping to get paid back. So a reduction of credit risk. We focus so much, I guess, in the work that me and Charles do on the kind of liability side and the impact COVID has had on that. What's been the kind of impact on COVID on the asset side of the balance sheet? It's a good question. I think one of the real striking things from the investment side is just how fast everything moved. So if you looked like in sort of February to March last year, markets just nosedive for six weeks and then bounce back really quickly. So we are sort of seeing a kind of V-shaped recovery, certainly. And actually, markets more expensive than they were pre-COVID. We're certainly seeing that. So I think probably a good test for liquidity stresses. And generally, what we've seen is that big core bulk of assets has sort of done its job and kept liquidity throughout. So something I'm curious to know is what is the sort of approach that you see general insurers taking when they review their investment strategy? And how does that compare to clients in other sectors, let's say large pension schemes or other institutions, sovereign wealth funds, those sorts of of bodies? It's not too dissimilar, actually. If anything, I would say it's more... So you're always considering the risk and return trade-off, investment risk and return trade-off. All investors are considering liquidity. I guess for a non-life insurer, you're probably having a similar process, but more of a weighting on liquidity. I think just really focusing on that and also then overlaying capital considerations. So one good example might be something like asset-backed securities. So when we speak to other types of investor, not insurers, many of those are looking at asset-backed securities. So part of the discussion there is to say, well, these are floating rate instruments. So if governments start pushing up interest rates, when I buy these instruments, the rate of interest that I get paid is linked to those interest rates. So if interest rates go up, that's actually good for me in a way that I get paid more money. So that's good. And there's other reasons that I'll not bore you with on asset-backed securities, but just when the government turns on the tap and pumps another trillion pounds into the system, they tend to be buying things like government bonds and corporate bonds and pushing up those prices rather than pushing up the prices of asset-backed securities. So actually, from a risk and return perspective, some of those look pretty attractive. But in the insurance side of things, like capital charges on those are just very high. So there are some workarounds in terms of if you can structure things in a particular way. But generally, we're finding that being a sort of asset that would look attractive to other types of investors. But for capital reasons, insurers tend to pass on. And sticking with the strategy review process for a moment, what are some of the pitfalls that you see general insurers fall into or some of the practices that you think could be improved perhaps by looking at the way things are done in other places? One of the points of learning might be sort of governance side of things. And by governance, I mean being willing and able to act quickly. There's often a philosophy, of course, we're long-term investors. Of course, we want to be conservative and prudent. I think that's not just a pass to not do anything and to be completely oblivious to market conditions. Maybe a good example of that is the philosophy that 
many clients have is to say generally history would tell us and common sense would tell us it's better to invest in assets when they're cheap than when they're expensive. If you're going to buy investment grade corporate bonds, generally buy them whenever they're yielding two or three percent above government bonds rather than nothing or half a percent. But actually what we found with some or where we've been helping some insurers recently is just to sort of test if their governance is sort of helping them to do that. And maybe a good example is, so say mid last year, corporate bonds did become a lot cheaper. And what we know is a lot of that's because of the pandemic, but a lot of that's because there were just investors that had bad liquidity that are just forced to sell whatever they can sell. So there are sort of technical reasons. If you were an insurer and then someone came along mid last year and said, now's the time to increase risk and stick lots of money into corporate bonds. (laughs) It's a tough one, isn't it? (laughs) It feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? And also it feels hard as well because you're busy with other stuff. So then coming along and saying, we want to change the investments and point new manager and things. But I think one of the interesting things that we're having is just looking at that governance and saying, are there things we could do to sort of learn lessons from it? So a simple thing that some of my clients have been doing is they set a few parameters of say, look, in theory, in the cold light of day with this asset class, if yields got to this level and we were happy that we had good liquidity as defined by X and we were comfortable that we had the pipework in place and a good manager, that might be three flashing green lights that probably say to us, now might be a good time to be discussing this and thinking about this. So just to make sure that we're sort of on the front foot rather than sort of reacting. I would say just for completeness as well, the opposite, the flip side is true as well. Having processes or metrics in place for when you wouldn't want to hold assets. So if yields fell to this measly level, or we had liquidity concerns, or we had risk concerns, let's just agree in advance what those might be. And then if we get a few flashing red lights, let's think hard about just being dynamic and doing something different. Agreed. So John, I guess, are there any benefits that insurers can be getting from this kind of higher inflation environment? It's a good question. And I think it's one where it's quite hard to find good options. One obvious one is, say, inflation-linked bonds. If we think inflation's on the way up, maybe we hold bonds that are linked to inflation. But, well, here's a quiz question for you, Justin and Charles. <laughs> if you bought a five-year UK government bond linked to inflation, you're going to lock into a return that's a bit less than inflation, just because of the way the markets are. How much less than inflation do you think it is based on current pricing? What would you pay for that bond? You're not going to get full inflation protection, but inflation minus what? How much return would we sacrifice? What return would you be locking into? I guess a couple of percent, maybe one or two percent, somewhere between there. Charles, any advance? I would have thought less, maybe one percent per annum. Yeah. So today, three and a half percent. Okay. (laughs) Wow. You're locking into three and a half percent less than inflation every year. So if you buy that for the next five years, what you're doing is you're locking into inflation minus 15 or 20 percent. Are you effectively saying that the price of inflation protection right now is extremely high? Yeah, exactly. So certainly if you want something liquid, government backed, it is expensive. And maybe if you're really, really worried about inflation, if you think inflation is going to be 20, it's still a good investment. But where we are, I think that's part of the driver for what we're seeing into lots of illiquids. You just see across the industry, lots of this. But if those assets are expensive, is there something that we could go into? Maybe something like direct lending or real estate debt, but something that's floating rate. 
it's a bit less liquid, but I know that if interest rates start going up, the payments that I get back from these interests and the yield would expect to go up as well. You put it that way, it makes a lot of sense because, frankly, it's just not worth buying inflation protection, A, because it's so expensive. And I suppose for general insurers also, the link between retail price inflation and the claims inflation that they're going to experience is only ever a sort of weak and tenuous link. So even buying insurance doesn't necessarily put you in a safe position. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense as to why people are then considering those illiquid and other options. And when you ask on the government bonds, you ask who's buying this stuff. Well, actually, a lot of the answer is the government or, you know, well, the Bank of England. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. They're putting up the price. <laughs> so we've talked about inflation, and I think that's absolutely right because it is such a pressing issue now. But I'm keen to hear from you as to what are some of the other issues that insurers and other investors are worrying about and that are driving strategy decisions right now. The other big one is environmental, social and governance issues that we're really saying. say that. Yeah, (laughs) true. So that's a buzzword bingo, I think. But no, we've been doing loads of work on that over the last few years. And frankly, actually, certainly a few years ago, a lot of that was quite challenging, maybe to oversimplify. But where a lot of firms got to is you would ask your managers for some information on this. They would come back to you with a huge amount of granular information. All of your managers would define ESG in a slightly different way. And you'd just be left with a load of information that you're sort of trying to put together and sort of trying to draw some conclusions from. It's just hard. Whereas actually what we've seen this year, I think, is firms getting some traction. This does seem to have been the year where all the ESG stuff has really started to get bedded in. Agreed. And what's been the catalyst for that? I think a big one, Jess, has been the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, if I can say that (laughs) properly. But I think just a realization amongst firms that you're going to need to align with the TCFD recommendations at some point in future, maybe before 2025, it may be a bit sooner than that, but it does feel like it's coming. And if you know that that's the direction of travel, then let's get started sooner rather than later. And clearly firms would want to make sure that they do comply as and when it becomes necessary. Something I've been wondering about, though, in the shorter term, there are some big institutions out there who are perhaps further down the road than general insurers in transitioning to an ESG-aware strategy. Does that mean there's some assets of which they're becoming forced sellers and which investors like general insurers need to steer clear of? I wouldn't say forced sellers, but there is certainly, we've seen quite a bit of interest in, if you look at your corporate bond portfolio, say you hold 200 different corporate bonds, you want to reduce your climate risk by 70%. And that's your target. And you've said that publicly. Actually, you don't have to sell a whole load of those bonds. So you might, if you looked through your portfolio and you looked at where the climate emission or the carbon emissions and things are, you might be selling half a dozen or maybe 10 of those bonds, you take out those high emitters and all of a sudden you can say that you've reduced your emissions intensity by two thirds or more. Okay. So it's actually a much more subtle shift. It is a more subtle shift, but also a worry about if there are a fairly small number of securities that might be under quite a lot of selling pressure, that's just one to have on your radar as a possible risk. And I guess with hopefully a lot of these firms moving to a more ESG-aware investment strategy, they're going to be selling off assets that are not ESG-aware. Does that mean it creates an opportunity for people to make money from 
buying these non-environmentally friendly assets up and making a money in the short term? It depends how you look at it. We're seeing a lot of those companies, the suspicion is a lot of them might end up in private hands rather than publicly listed. I think if you're reporting publicly or if you are covered by TCFD, it's quite difficult to say that you've increased your climate risk by 700% because you want to be buying these companies that are perhaps laggards in the transition. We haven't seen a lot of insurer firms or pension schemes, for example, take that approach. That's probably not surprising. I think even just from people that we speak to in the market, I think sentiment has shifted noticeably in the last 12 to 24 months, whereas, whereby some of the ESG skeptics from two years ago, I think they accept now that the world has just changed. Exactly. And I think one of the real benefits as well of the traction is that just others have done this. You're not reinventing the wheel. There are metrics out there that are quite well established. There's good ways of engaging with managers. There's good ways of analyzing risks in a fairly consistent way. If you ask a manager for some information, they are familiar with what you're asking and they tend to provide it in a useful format. Okay. So they're geared up for it more than they were. Yes. And they certainly weren't geared up for it three or four years ago, but we've seen real rapid progress in that. We've talked mainly about the E in ESG so far, but to what extent are investment managers geared up to drill down into the S and the G to help investors make sure that they're not investing in firms that have got dodgy supply chains, human rights issues, those sorts of things? We are just seeing a lot more expectation in that area. I think you're exactly right. It's been the E is sort of taking the limelight and certainly with things like COP26 coming up, We'd expect that to go on for a little while. A lot of these issues, the transition to a low carbon economy is going to have massive S issues, societal. Who pays for this? Does everyone need to pay £10,000 for new (laughs) boilers and things like that? So there is a lot of linkage there. And I think G is an area where managers have always been reasonably on top of it, to be honest, because it's been a bit more established because... It just makes common sense. If you're investing money with a company, you want them to have good governance practices. You don't want fraud. You want to make sure that they're actually taking sensible decisions. Now, something I wanted to ask you about, and I appreciate that you may not be entirely unconflicted on this question, but I'm aware that quite a lot of general insurers don't use an independent investment advisor. That role tends to be filled by one of the main investment managers. Is that still true? And what are the pros and cons of that versus getting an independent advisor in? Conscious, of course, that you are an independent advisor. (laughs) (laughs) What do you see emerging practice in the market as and how would you suggest that it should work? With all the caveats of conflicts, we're seeing more interest in having an independent advisor, I would say. I think if you're keeping things very simple and all of your assets are in short-dated, plain vanilla investment grade corporate bonds or government bonds or cash, and you're with a big asset manager or a couple of big asset managers that are well established in that, you can probably get by actually without a lot of investment advice, frankly. I think there is benefits, but I would say that, but I think you can't really go too far wrong. I think where we are seeing is if clients are saying, look, I'm moving into areas like illiquid investments where just our in-house team doesn't have as much expertise, I'm not super convinced that my existing manager is the best asset manager in yeah, the world. Yeah, because they might be looking after the core that you described earlier. 
Exactly. So it does feel like it's worth going through the exercise of actually having a look, seeing who's best placed, seeing who the best credentials in the market are and who may have weaknesses, and just making sure that if you're going to kind of get into a long-term relationship in a fund or with an investment, you just get off on the right foot and make sure that you've done your due diligence. So John, what are a few things that insurers should be doing with their investments today? So I think a lot of it is some of the things we've touched on, really. So some of the most interesting stuff we've been seeing is just a health check, maybe of the asset mix. And it feels like the environment may be changing, the economic environment. It feels like rates may be rising over the next few years. So just have a look at your assets through that lens. Is there anything that may be vulnerable? And are there any opportunities? And there might be just simple things to do, like shortening the duration of corporate bond portfolios that could just help you to make sure that you are resilient. I think some of the really interesting and useful exercises we've done recently are on governance, believe it or not. Just thinking in advance about when might we change our asset mix? Are there any sort of parameters? If markets are going to be volatile over the next few years or could be volatile, let's just try and be disciplined and say, when would we change? our asset mix. So we'll still be a long-term investor, but of course we want to be mindful of the economic environment and making sure that we're managing risks and taking opportunities. And I'd say the last one is, if you haven't done so already, I would say do start thinking about aligning with the TCFD recommendations. And I think it's you're a lot better placed than you would have been a couple of years ago because others have already been through the process. Good practice is much better defined. And there's loads of good case studies and examples you could be looking at. That's a great summary and a good moment to sort of close that discussion off. So in closing then, John, tell us something that we won't necessarily find on your investment advice CV. Just in the last couple of days, I have booked my trip to go to the Kentucky Derby next year, which should be good fun. So yeah, long belated. I was meant to go last year, but it was cancelled for obvious reasons. So going there and then going on a road trip down to New Orleans. So looking forward. Oh, I'm very jealous. That sounds absolutely fantastic. So it should be good. And do you have any recommendations of something for our listeners to read, watch or listen to that you've particularly enjoyed recently? I have... A five-year-old daughter. So most of the books that I read involve (laughs) The Gruffalo or Paddington Bear. But I've been watching a good series, Blair and Brown, about the new Labour government, which is really good. And just strike in that sort of two people going through the same events and describing the same events. But recollections may vary. Well, thanks so much for joining us, John. That was really a very helpful discussion. There's plenty for insurers to chew on there. Thanks very much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.